I'm very pleased to hear that there is a ceasefire in Israel, as I take it we all are. Uh, it has been quite surreal to see the media reports about rocket fire and riots in, in the kind of places that Mandy, the actual places that Mandy and I went and visited a, a couple of years ago. Uh, it's not the first time that there's been fighting between Israel and Palestine, of course, and sadly it's unlikely to be the last. When we travelled over there, it was clear that there were some serious tensions around that part of the world. As we walked around the Muslim quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, there were all of these Israeli Defence Force soldiers walking around with semi-automatic weapons. And I've got to say, it got a little unnerving at times. But that is just normal life in Jerusalem and Israel. And to be honest, there's been fighting there for a lot longer than just 50 or 60 or 70 years. There's been fighting there for centuries and centuries and centuries and really there doesn't seem to be a simple solution to it does there which is really sad given the high points in Israel's monarchy we've seen more recently that in King David's time he established a kingdom under God in the city that has his name the city of David Jerusalem and then his son Solomon took it to the next level and wow didn't he just the temple the palace, the whole centre of the universe right there in that place. And Solomon's rule was world-renowned as well, an influence that was truly global. But from that very high point, we saw it all come crashing down. Solomon failed to follow the Lord, and he led his people away from the Lord. And after his death, this great nation, God's people, ripped in half one bunch served a king in the north another bunch served a king in the south and now God's kingdom was divided and to be honest it's a real mess in the north we had King Jeroboam who did enormous evil he created a fake religion which caused his people to desert the true God and then in the south well, we've got King Rehoboam. He's not much better, really, either. And the North and the South fought with each other, and this dream of a united kingdom was shattered. But who cares? I mean, that's just world history. There's little hot spots all over the world at any given time. That was 3,000 years ago, nearly. Who really cares? But to be honest, I think we as people of the Word of God, we, we expected more than that. We expected that God's kingdom would be different. After all, all those promises at the start of the Bible given to Abraham, they were all about God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we're looking at Solomon and we're ticking all those boxes and saying, here we are, let's go, it's right this very spot. But then it went pear-shaped very quickly, which is a bit of a problem. It's a problem for us because God made a promise he promised his people that they'd have that place. They'd have their rule. But the problem is it's now an absolute disaster. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, what has gone wrong? Has God's promise failed? Has his promise failed? Is his word hollow? Can we really trust him? And, you know, I wonder whether or not that's the very thing that people had in their mind as they saw everything come crashing down, as they saw the mess in Israel unfold and I think we feel it to some extent today 
We know that the Lord Jesus is returning soon to judge the living and the dead and to bring an end to this mess that we see and experience from Gaza to Gainsborough. But where is he? What's he doing? Why the delay? What's happening with the promise? These are all the questions that we bring to the text right here. We're going to be tackling two chapters tonight of 1 Kings. I'm not going to go and and read out to you every single verse. I'll jump across from one to the other time to time. But we're going to be looking at this Old Testament book and these two particular chapters because we're right in the middle of a section where we've looked in detail at David's throne, how it was given over to Solomon and how Solomon made the amazing temple and the palace. And then we saw the mess from Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. But in chapters 15 and 16 tonight... We're going to look at 60 years of rule, okay? So get that in your head. There's going to be a lot of ground covered in these two chapters. And in this time, we are going to see two southern kings and six northern kings. So we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're not going to get the detail that we have in other chapters, but we will see this. Because next week, things will slow right down again as we'll look at just King Ahab, Elijah. Uh, The two chapters we're looking at today are the ones that preachers often skip over. I can't imagine why, because we've got not just one king or two kings, we've in fact got ourselves eight to look at. So let's have a look, firstly, at the kings in the south. That's what we're going to look at first. We're going to look at the two in the south, and then we're going to look at the six in the north. begins with chapter 15, verse 1, where we read that Abijam began to rule over Judah in the 18th year of Jeroboam's reign in Israel. Notice there, he's talking about and referring to Jeroboam. He's the north guy, isn't he? Yeah. Even though they are separate, the the writer can't stop telling us about them as though they're kind of connected. This is happening in the year of the north one, and the north one's happening in the year of the south one. The one nation is separated for now, but... It is one nation, and they just can't but help thinking about the two together. But anyway, Abijam, we read, verse 2, reigned in Jerusalem for three years. His mother was Makar, the granddaughter of Absalom. He's in Jerusalem. That's where you expect the centre of the action to be for God's people. There where the temple is and the palace is. And we read that he's related to Absalom, Absalom, who was King David's son. Absalom, he was a bad guy, right? Yeah. He was the son who, through whom it nearly all unraveled for King David. And so we read here that this guy, this king, is the, is the great-grandson of Absalom. You're thinking, well, that's not so good. Is there a problem there? Well, maybe. Or will he be a bit more like David? What's he going to be like? We'll have a look at verse 3. He committed the same sins as his father before him. And he was not faithful to the Lord his God as his ancestor David had been. I take that as a no. He's a bad king. He's in the south, but he's a bad king. King Abijam of Judah, he sinned just like his dad, Rehoboam. And the heart of the sin was this. It says, he was not faithful to the Lord his God. Uh, For a king ruling in Jerusalem, you've got one job. Follow the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord. And what does he do? No thanks. 
And right here you see that he is compared to whom? To his ancestor David. See, King David is the benchmark for all the kings. Time and time again we'll see so-and-so did this, but he wasn't like David. So-and-so did this, and he was a bit like David. We keep talking about David this, David that. He's the benchmark. He's the one from whom everybody is judged when it comes to one kings. But why? It's because even though he sinned, he came to the Lord for mercy. He's the guy who sinned terribly. But he came to the Lord and said, sorry, and the Lord washed him whiter than snow. He is a man who is truly devoted to the Lord. That is what we need in a true king. A king who may fail, but at least acknowledges his sin. Oh, that we would see that amongst these kings. And oh, we feel the need for a king just like that as we are looking at one king's. But this king was even more special to the Lord because the Lord promised an everlasting kingdom to David. That was what was promised to him. And we see a hint of that here in verse 4. But for David's sake, the Lord his God allowed his descendants to continue ruling, shining like a lamp. And he gave Abijam a son to rule after him in Jerusalem. It keeps going back to King David. They can't forget King David. He keeps popping up time and time again. And he says, for David's sake, there would be descendants from David down there in the south, shining like a lamp. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? There's some hope. There's a, there's a bit of a bright spot in the midst of the darkness. There's a bit of light in the midst of all the clouds. And because of the promises to David, the Lord kept that kingly line going. And the family rule would continue to the next guy. But before that, we are reminded about David. And we, it's a bit of an honest reminder. Verse 5, For David had done what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and had obeyed the Lord's commands throughout his life except in the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite. Oh, that affair. Oh, what was, what was that about? Oh, that can't have been very much, surely. No, no, it was affair as in adultery and adultery which led to murder. Um, David was not perfect, but he was forgiven. Which I think as we see this mess of kings, as we look at the passage tonight, we're reminded again that God will accept people who have a life that is a mess. If your life is a mess and you haven't come yet to the Lord Jesus Christ because you think there's no way in the world that he'd accept me. Or maybe you've got a friend and say, I could could not possibly let them come to church with me because the roof would cave in or at least that's what they'd say. Bear in mind that the hero of this story is a guy who was an adulterer and a murderer. And so quite frankly, if the Lord might accept David and his pleas for forgiveness then you've got to be given a fresh reminder of the wide open grace that is brought to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. David, who is the one from whom everything is judged, is the same rat bag who committed a horrible sin but was forgiven. And I take great heart to that. Great comfort from that. But is there any information about why the king after Rehoboam, Abijam, was such a bad guy? 
Why? Well, verse 6, we read that there was a war between Abijam and Jeroboam throughout Abijam's rule, through his reign. Gives us a bit of a clue. You remember last time, the guy in the south wanted to have war with the guys in the north, remember? And the Lord said, don't do it. And they stopped for a little while. That was great. Turns out they said, okay, forget that. We'll go back in and fight. And in the background of all of this, we've got this constant squabble, war between Abijam and Jeroboam all throughout Abijam's reign. Just a reminder of the disobedience of these kings. Not that Abijam's round a long time. We read that he's there for three calendar years and then his son Asa took over, verse 10. This is the second one of the two of the southern kings we'll look at. And we read that he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. Wow, that's a long time. And we read that his grandmother was Markar, the granddaughter of Absalom. He was king for a long time. Longer than David was king. Longer than Solomon was king. Longer than Rehoboam was king. And even Jeroboam in the north. Maybe this is the guy we're looking forward to. Because honestly, if he can reign for 41 years, he must be doing something right, surely. Is he the man? Is he the one after David that we're looking forward to? Well, we read in verse 11 that Asa did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, as his ancestor David had done. This is good. It looks promising. He might actually be like David. So what did he do that was so good? What do you think he'd do? Well, we read that he banished the male and female shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Marka, from her position as queen mother because she had made an obscene Asherah pole. He cut down her obscene pole and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Ass is a good guy. Why? Because he gets rid of all of the pagan worship. He wants to reform things. He wants to sort of bring them back to what it was like under Solomon, or actually even more like under David. He wants to get rid of all these things. He even got his grandma to stop being queen mother. Why? Because she wouldn't get rid of the the shrine prostitutes and the idols. And she wouldn't get rid of this pagan religion. And it's a pretty big move. Because he knew that the pagan stuff was evil in the Lord's sight. He knew how much God hated that stuff. And he's like, I'm going to sort this out. And so he throws it out. And he throws it out. And Granny won't get rid of it. Well, he gets rid of Granny. And so all her stuff gets burned up as well. She's no longer got the gig as the Queen Mother because she's with the old plan. Got to get with the new plan. We're going to clean this place up. Which is a helpful reminder that, in, you know, ultimately, following the Lord is more important than following family when push comes to shove. When Asa... He, he, you know, he sacked his grandma from being the queen mother. He also destroyed that idol that she had. I don't think I've seen too many Asherah poles around the Illawarra. But there are a lot of other things that steal our hearts from following the Lord. You know, we, we tend to get freaked out by devil worship. Ooh, there's a devil worshipper and stuff like that. But we don't seem to get too fussed about retail worship. You know, they're all idols, aren't they? They're, they're supernatural things that take us away from the Lord. But whatever it is, they've got to go if they're going to take us away from the Lord. Which is often easier said than done. Asa did a pretty good job, but he didn't totally nail it. He couldn't completely get it right. Because we read in verse 14 that although the pagan shrines were not removed, 
as his heart remained completely faithful to the Lord throughout his life. That's good. And we read that he brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the various items that he and his father had dedicated. Lots of good news. They weren't able to get rid of all the pagan shrines. He had a good go, but presumably people said no thanks, or they kept them going. But he did bring back into the temple all the special temple things. He revitalized the temple. Now, as you're reading this, you're thinking, this, this, there's good signs here. It's promising. It, he hasn't totally nailed it. There's a bit of difficulty changing that big ship and turning it. It's a big ship to turn. It sort of seems good. But it's kind of not. And it's all related to war in the Middle East. Verse 16. There was constant war between King Asa of Judah in the, in the south and King Basha of Israel in the north. King Basha of Israel invaded Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from entering or leaving King Asa's territory in Judah. What's happened now is the king in the north has crept down into the south bit and he's made a big barricade and so now there's a kind of a, a he's, you know, he's, he's built a wall and he's built a wall and now he's blocking travel and trade and it's, it's got pretty nasty. Things have escalated in the war in Israel. So what do you reckon Asa should do? He's the guy who's, he's got the potential. You think, he's going to get this sorted. I, I've got a lot of confidence in Asa. He's got the temple sorted out. He's, he's got all the stuff in it that, that shows his dedication to the Lord. And he's got rid of all, the, well, most of all of the pagan stuff. It's really good. So if I was Asa, if you were Asa, what do you reckon you'd do under this circumstance? I reckon I'd go to the temple. And I'd go to the temple, which I've, I've sort of you know, renovated a bit, and, and go there and pray to the Lord and say, things are heating up on the border. It's getting bad. I... I want to bring to you my requests, my concerns as I, as I revere you here in the temple. Because this is where the action is. This is the, the very epicenter of worship in the world. What does King Asa do? Are you confident about King Asa? Mm. Asa responded by removing all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and the royal palace. He got all the stuff from the temple and the palace. What would he do with all of that stuff? Why would he take all of the expensive things and stick them in a truck? What's he going to do with that? Well, we read verse 18 and 19 that he sent it with some of his officials to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabramon, son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus along with this message. Let there be a treaty between you and me, like the one between your father and my father. See, I'm sending you a gift of silver and gold. Break your treaty with King Basha of Israel so that he will leave me alone. What does good King Asa do? He bribes a pagan king with the temple treasures. Uh, really? Surely not. He goes into the temple. He gets all the precious stuff. And he says to the pagan king who's, in the, who's ruling on the northern border of Israel. So you've got you know, the northern people and you've got the southern people. He, he's talking to the people above them, up in Aram, up there. He's basically bribing him. 
See, Asa had spent all his energy making the temple right. And what does he do? He rips out all the goodies and he sends them up to the king at the top. And he does it so that that king will break his promise. With the very things that were there in the temple, as the, in the covenant there, the promise is all celebrated at the temple. And he says, I want to bribe you with these things so that you break your covenant. It's dripping in irony. But it does work. Because Ben-Hadad agreed to King Asa's request and he sent the commanders of his army to attack the towns of Israel from the north. And as soon as Bashar of Israel, the guy in the middle, heard what was happening, he abandoned his project of fortifying Ramah, down the bottom, and he withdrew to Terzah. And then King Asa, our guy down the bottom, he sent an order throughout Judah requiring that everyone, without exception, help to carry away the building stones and timbers that Bashar had been using to fortify Ramah. What's this all about? Well, basically, the bad guys, you know, they get attacked and all things get sorted out and then they get put into slavery again, just like it was under Solomon. It's like, uh, this is not looking so good. He is a king in the line of David. We had hoped so much for him. And what does he do? He robs the temple to bribe a pagan king. This is not going to be the guy who's going to tick all the boxes for our King David's descendant, is he? How do you feel about that? You're thinking, oh, how much longer before you give us the real one, the real descendant of David? As we see this, we notice that we must wait for the great king who will follow after David. We're going to need to keep waiting. And with all of that, we read that Asa died and then his son Jehoshaphat becomes king next. And we don't hear anything more about Jehoshaphat until chapter 22, which is really, it's near the end of one kings. So we've got a bit of a gap here, a big gap actually, because now we're going to flick up to the north. We've been looking at Judah down the bottom. Now we're going to have a look at Israel up the top. Spoiler alert, if you think what happened in Judah was disappointing, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because what happens in the north in Israel is an absolute dog's breakfast. It's an absolute train wreck. And it starts with Nadab. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, began to rule over Israel in the second year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Israel for two years, not a particularly long time, but he did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his father, continuing the sins that Jeroboam had led Israel to commit. He only ruled for two years, but he kept doing the things that his bad dad did. Jeroboam, more and more and more. But why did he only rule for two years? That's not a particularly long time. Might be for our... Australian Prime Ministers, but in the time here, it wasn't a particularly long time. Verse 27, we read that Basha, son of Ahijah, from the tribe of... Just get that clicker working. Can I get that manually clicking? Thank you. Whoop. Then Basha, son of Ahijah, from the tribe of Asakah, plotted against Nadab and assassinated him while he and the Israelite army were laying siege to the Philistine towns of Gibeothon. Okay. Basically, he ruled until he was killed by King Basha. Two years. That was it. 
But the killing didn't stop there. Verse 29, he immediately slaughtered all the descendants of King Jeroboam so that not one of the royal family was left, just as the Lord had promised concerning Jeroboam by the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh. This guy gets assassinated and all his family. What a mess. Why would this horrible thing happen? Why do they deserve that? And why would the Lord God be involved in this? Verse 30, we read, This was done because Jeroboam had provoked the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by the sins he committed and the sins that he led Israel to commit. Is it possible that the Lord is somehow involved in this evil? Good question, isn't it? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is indeed. The Lord had told Jeroboam, who's a bad, bad guy, The Lord had told him that judgment was coming upon him and his whole family would be judged as well. And it's because not only did he turn away from the Lord, but he turned all those people away. All those precious people of God were turned away. And Jeroboam's told, you're going to get it and so will your whole family. And now it's happened. It's all happened with the sinful, evil will of this psychopath king who unknowingly wields the sword on behalf of the Lord. John Woodhouse, in his excellent commentary on 1 Kings, puts it like this. Let me read to it. He says, Here we must understand that the Bible teaches that even the most wicked human actions can be taken by God and made to serve his purposes. The dreadful Basha had no idea that he was serving God, but he was. His actions were inexcusably evil, as we will see. But God accomplished his righteous purposes with Basha. End quote. Even wicked human actions can serve God's purposes. We are again reminded that God is in control of everything, even evil, and his judgments and his justice are good and fair. Over the past couple of weeks, I've had a number of chats with people who haven't yet come to become a follower of Jesus, non-Christians, unbelievers. And as I've chatted with them about different things, one common theme has risen, and that is about injustices that they were experiencing in their life or injustices that they had experienced in their past. When you see the, the anger in their face, or the hurt on their face when they or someone has been ripped off because of an injustice. They understand the need for justice. The whole idea of your kingdom come it is a good thing, even if you don't know Jesus, because you recognise the benefits of justice. It is a good thing that God is a righteous judge. It's not good for the day when you're not following Jesus because the justice will come out on you. But it is a day we long for when we see the Lord judge. And judgment day is coming soon. And occasionally, like we see here, we are told of specific times when the Lord has judged people, when justice has been meted out this side of heaven, this side of justice, of judgment day. And we see it here. But anyway, back to the story. 
Bashar ruled for 24 years, that's a reasonable stint, but he was really evil. So what did the Lord do? Did he say, oh, well, that's what you expect in the northern kingdoms? No. He spoke to this evil Bashar through a prophet. And we see in chapter 16, verse 2, he says through this prophet to Bashar, the Lord says, I lifted you out of the dust to make you ruler of my people Israel. But you followed the evil example of Jeroboam. You've provoked my anger by causing my people Israel to sin. So now I will destroy you and your family, just as I destroyed the descendants of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. The members of Bashar's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. Thus says the Lord. The Lord has seen the horrific evil of this king and the way that he has brought evil to others and the way that others have been led astray. And so he promises to judge and promises to bring justice. And then with this, Bashar died and was followed by King Elah. Elah became king until some big problems came. Verse 9, we're skipping along. Then Zimri who commanded half of the royal chariots, made plans to kill him. One day in Terzah, Elah was getting drunk at the home of Azar, the supervisor of the palace. Zimri walked in, struck him down and killed him. And this happened in the 27th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. And then Zimri became the next king. Yeah, we're just kind of expecting this, aren't we, really? The rule of Elah was pretty short-lived. But the assassination didn't stop with the king. Verse 11... Zimri immediately killed the entire royal family of Bashar, leaving him not even a single male child. He even destroyed distant relatives and friends. So Zimri destroyed the dynasty of Bashar as the Lord had promised through the prophet Jehu. It, it happened because of all the sins Bashar and his son Elah had committed and because of the sins they led Israel to commit. They provoked the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, with their worthless idols. Same, same. It, it's almost like one of those graphic movies that you're stuck in the cinema looking, thinking more violence, more violence, and it just keeps rolling, and eventually it doesn't affect you after a while. That's 1 Kings chapter 16, I've got to say. Because here we get Elah killed by King Zimri. But not just Basha's family killed, but even distant relatives and friends. And the Lord used this evil to carry out the judgment he promised and that they deserved. But things don't go so well for King Zimri. He didn't really have the support of the army for his little act of treason, verse 16, that when this army heard that Zimri had committed treason and had assassinated the king, that very day they chose Omri, commander of the army, as the new king. Don't want him? Let's get this guy. So Omri led the entire army of Israel from Gibbethon to attack Terzah, Israel's capital, and when Zimri saw that the city had been taken, he went into the citadel of the palace, burned it down over himself, and died in the flames. For he too had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. He followed the example of Jeroboam in all the sins he'd committed and led Israel to commit. Hardly a picture of political stability. Zimri died and was replaced by King Omri. But that's what happens when the Lord rejects the, the Lord's king rejects the Lord. Then they have a little civil war. Omri stays king. He buys a little hill that was going to be called Samaria. And Omri, how's he going with all of this? Verse 25, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. 
I see your evil. I raise you as you, my evil. So he didn't go that well. And then his son Ahab became the next king who would reign for 22 years. He's the last guy today. How did he go? Verse 30. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. And he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. And then he set up an Asherah pole, as you do. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Ahab becomes king and he takes idolatry to a whole new level. And that's where our second chapter ends. Except an interesting cameo where a guy called Hiel tries to rebuild Jericho and then his oldest and youngest sons die in fulfilment of the prophecy back in Joshua. How did you go with all of that? It was quite a journey through chapters 15 and 16. You can easily get lost in the sea of idolatry and violence. And that's the mess that we're confronted with in the Bible. The northern kingdom of God's land is an absolute shocker. And the south isn't much better. And with all of this, you've got to ask yourself the question, what's happened to the promise God made to David? All those years. How's it going? North, uh, south, bad. How's it all going? Where's the promise? The Lord had said he would rule his people in his place and there would be peace. They would have rest in the land. All these wonderful promises and how's it looking? Embarrassing almost. God made his promises and you think, what's happened to them? Are they ever going to come true? And I wonder if you ever feel that way with God's promises. God's fulfilled all his promises in the greatest king of all, Jesus Christ. He never committed evil and he ruled with love and truth and mercy. And now we are waiting for his return. We with creation are groaning, longing for the day when Jesus will come back and the mess will end and all will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And it's been really painful to see this decline of the kingdom of God. But it shows that nobody but Jesus could tick all those boxes. And now Jesus has died and has risen and has ascended. We wait patiently for the Lord. And we wait. And we wait. And we wait. And we think, is he actually going to deliver the goods? Is he going to fulfill that promise? How can we know? And so we look back at the Old Testament and the mess of 1 Kings and we see the fulfilment in Jesus. Did God keep his promises? Yes. Are there any that he hasn't kept? No. What promises have we still got? I am coming back soon. 
What do you reckon are the chances that he's going to keep that? Oh, roughly 100%, surely. Patience today as we wait will be rewarded with the return of Jesus. We see the mess of one kings. We, we see the mess of Gaza. We see the mess of the Illawarra. And we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Is he ever going to come back? You bet he is. Let's pray.